Well, Carrie, there's only one way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. All right. Welcome to the 100th episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcast network. Yay! 100 episodes. 100. And who are you? Uh, oh, I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And of course, it's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer for 100 episodes now. Yeah, I couldn't could not have that in there for the 100th. Very excited. Um, it's, our, it's our big 100th episode bash, and we are uh, tackling a very special topic. I'm going to build to it a little bit more, but the listener has already seen the episode title, so mm-hmm. uh, I'm really just spinning my... And by extension, your wheels here. Ooh. Save it for later. Caroline, we have thus far mostly avoided the real big name serial killers, your your brand name boys. Well, not necessarily specifically avoided them, but they all take a lot of research if you're going to bring anything new to the table. Um, and they've all been covered a lot. So lots yes. of people have brought their stuff to the table already. Yeah. So you want to make sure that you're you know, just bringing an interesting perspective. And um, I think we're going to do that with this one. Yes, because we are finally, we are going to get into a, I would say a big name in serial killing for (laughs) our uh, 100th episode kind of anniversary series, because this is going to be a three or maybe a four parter. Could be a four, could be a four. Okay. And uh, this is Maybe the best-known serial killer of all time. Uh, uh, Caroline, what's the subject of today's episode? Yeah, this is one of the biggest true crime cases ever. One of the first to create an international sensation. The 1888 crimes of Jack the Ripper. Saucy Jack. Saucy Jackie. A serial killer who was never caught and never identified. But I assume most people listening to this particular show will at least have heard of Jack the Ripper. Yes, I, you would think so. <laughs> what I and, uh, as you said before, by extension we, are hoping to do with this series is explore the real stories and people involved with this sensational case. And add a little context to the crimes, dig into the suspects and conspiracy theories, and eventually, hopefully determine our best idea of who Jack the Ripper might have been. So honor the victims and, um, oh, and you think we're going to crack this, uh, <laughs> you think we're going to crack this 100-year-old case? I, I want to get to the, we might do like a a suspect roundup and rating like we did f- way back for D.B. Cooper. Um, we'll see how we feel by the end of this whole shenanigans. But basically, I would like each of us to have a favorite suspect that who who we think could have plausibly done these crimes. Okay. I mean, it was the Freemasons and the Royals, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I'm sure, you know, as we said before, we're not cracking the case. We're not bringing anything super new. We're not, we're not investigating new facts here. Well, and maybe it's a good thing to get out of the way right at the top to kind of for, for expectation setting purposes, this case will never be solved. We will never know who Jack the Ripper is, right? Yeah, I don't have any new evidence for all of you. I don't have any dark family secrets to reveal that will unmask the killer once and for all. But I think we can provide a good overview of the case and all the circumstances surrounding it and also kind of establish how it became the origin of 
true crime mania and what this case means for us today. Yeah, and in a way, he's uh, you know, he's the biggest Jack, not because he's the best, but but because he's sort of the first, right? The first uh, killer of this kind that really captured people's imagination. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the Babe Ruth, you know, he's the Superman, he's the first big one, so he's always going to loom large, even though he might not have the numbers that some of the other guys did. Yeah, and Nicolas Cage has that copy of William Gull number one that is <laughs> worth a million dollars or something, right? Yeah, that's a joke only for us. <laughs> well, and for the listener in a few episodes when we get to Mr. Gull. Yes. Um, so I'm going to be referencing a few books and documentaries throughout this series, but my prime sources that I want to kind of credit at the top are The Jack the Ripper Files by Richard Jones, The Ultimate Jack the Ripper Sourcebook by Stuart P. Evans and Keith Skinner, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold, and The Complete Jack the Ripper by Donald Rumbelow. There's a lot of there's a lot of case books and source books and encyclopedias. Wonderful. I don't want to get you too far off the mark here, right right off the bat. Um, but can we maybe uh, can I ask what you, what your favorite Jack the Ripper related uh, fiction is or or media? Oh gosh. Okay. The Dear Boss Letter. That's no. my favorite piece of Jack the Ripper. No, media. my favorite is Time After Time, um, which. Of course. Ironically, I just saw a post on Facebook that it was released uh, on this date in 1979. I think that puts it right on target on schedule for a like TikTok revival of some kind. All the kids <laughs> are going to get into time after time. I hope so. So listeners probably don't know unless you like old sci-fi movies but time after time is a film starring um malcolm mcdowell from a clockwork orange mary steenbergen who plays people's moms in like every good movie including elf wonderfully and she's also wonderful in this yes and um david warner one of my favorite character actors who sadly recently passed away although carrie steenbergen's not a mom in this Oh, no. She's a mommy. She's a lady out she's on the town. She's a mommy. M-A-M-I. She's hot to trot, and yes. she's looking to... I can't make a rhyme there. Um, this film came out in 1979, and really interestingly, it stars McDowell, who was known at the time as like a horrific psychotic villain from Clockwork Orange. He's playing sort of a sweet fuddy-duddy version of H.G. Wells, the author, um, he did the time machine, aptly, you know, probably a little worlds. Probably a little sweeter and a little fuddy-duddier than H.G. Wells himself. Sure, but it's not a biopic because uh, the conceit of the film is that H.G. Wells, who was alive at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders, um, is actually friends with a doctor who turns out to be Jack the Ripper and has also been working on a time machine in his uh, spare time. Who And the doctor, played by David Warner, um, travels to 1979 to try to escape being captured by the police once they figure out who he is. And H.G. Wells have, has to go after him. Yeah, it's H.G. Wells using his real-life time machine yep. to uh, go, go into modern day. I mean, 1979. San Francisco. San Francisco. So and, it's very uh, disco. It's very modern. And it's really interesting because H.G. Wells in real life wrote a lot about utopia and the idea that the future would be a, a Eden-like place. And he gets there, and it turns out it's 1979. You know, there, Vietnam was going on recently. 
people are there's terrorism and jack the ripper is fitting right in into the new world much is made there's like a a little bit of a a a scene i roll my eyes at kind of where he like he's flipping the channels and looking at the news and he's like yeah but they're all like me he's not wrong so it's a very interesting um take on the jack the ripper story because it's kind of like this action sci-fi adventure there's love thrown in hg wells and mary steenbergen uh, her name's amy in the film they fall in love and then he has to save her from jack the ripper it's a great movie if you've never seen it try to find it online it's probably on amazon um yeah time after time that's my favorite fiction and shout out to father of the pod fall fall not fall oh no (laughs) william shears campbell (laughs) no fall ferrante he uh he showed me that movie um and i've shown many people it because no one's ever heard of it but it's a great film especially if you like kind of a i don't know like a light thriller god carrie you're gonna start a paul is dead rumor for the modern age (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) uh my favorite piece of uh um Jack the Ripper media is from hell. Not the Johnny Depp movie, but the comic that it's yeah. based on. That's probably one of mine, too. Um, Top a, three. A 600 or 700 page uh, black and white sketch illustration comic book by Alan Moore. Uh, published over like 10 years in which he, um, well, as I kind of alluded to before, implicates the crown and the Masons in the, the Jack the Ripper killings. Uh, it's real gory and um weird and esoteric and magical and um draws on a lot of history but then makes a lot of history up it's great and it might make an appearance later in this series mm-hmm. but there's also the great board game letters from Whitechapel. yeah that's a good one where one player is jack the ripper and all of the uh, other players are the police investigators trying to track him down after each of his crimes mm-hmm I believe also the uh, director of Time After Time, he wrote a few Sherlock Holmes um, update novels that most people say are the best Sherlock Holmes not written by Arthur Conan Doyle. And I think in one of them, he is going after Jack the Ripper. Um, It's a very popular trope because Sherlock Holmes was around at the time. So, of course, you want the greatest detective going after this murderer. You'll you'll see that in movies. Yep. Uh, Sherlock Holmes... Consulting Detective, another board game that we have, has an expansion called Jack the Ripper and West End Mysteries or something, where, where yeah. yes, Sherlock is... game on Steam, too. Um, there's a Michael Caine miniseries that's very good. There's tons of stuff. I mean, aside from From Hell, the adaptation movie, there hasn't been, like, a real big-name version of this story, and yeah. I'm, it's kind of surprising. That Johnny Depp movie is kind of a stinker, too. Yeah, and it's also, it's not based on, like, reality, you know? Uh, It's based on Alan Moore's story, you know? So I think it's due probably for for a real serious treatment in film. But till then, there are things here and there you can find that are, uh, that interestingly touch on Jack the Ripper. I guess the problem is you can't make a quote-unquote accurate version because we don't know, you know, it's because it's unsolved and we don't know who the guy is. Yeah, you either have to do it from the perspective of a detective, maybe, like the Jack the Ripper miniseries with Michael Caine, or uh, you pick one of the theories and you run with it. I mean, that's an unsatisfying ending, though, surely. Just like we got in real life. Yeah, unless it ends with some sort of cover-up and sort of thing, which is probably, uh, that's how From Hell ends, right? Yes. Yeah. So, anyway. 
Uh, there's a lot you, could, you guys can check out if you're still interested. And I'll probably be listing some names of documentaries as we go on. But these are the books. Uh, and before we start, I do want to include a bit of a warning. His name is Jack the Ripper, not Jack the very nice and sane man. So his crimes are brutal and disgusting in detail. And saucy. Yes, I won't dwell on the horrors of the crimes with glee or anything, but I will be stating the facts of the bodily harm done to these women. So please proceed with care if that's something that might upset you. And we will be treating the character of Jack the Ripper lightly. We'll probably probably be doing some bad Cockney accents. Um, th- that's not making light of his crimes. It's just, uh, you know, it's fun to do a bad accent, I guess. Cut some tuna gets me buckled, I does. Saucy Jackie. Saucy Jackie. Example number one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so trigger warning. If uh, talk about intestines and uh, stabbing is upsetting to you. I made off with some of the intestines I did. <sighs> saucy Jackie. All right. Keep it in your pants, Saucy Jackie. But let's begin. Let's get into our Ain't It Scary time machine. Maybe we borrowed it from H.G. Wells. And travel back to late 1800s London, England, and particularly the worst side of town the Whitechapel District, and its inner smaller district of Spitalfields. Oh, that's no, that sounds like a beautiful resort community. Oh. Spitalfields? I mean, Whitechapel sounds kind of pretty. Um, 1888 feels far away, but I think it's closer to our reality than we realize. Uh, as much as things change, a lot stays the same. Well, surely the crippling division between rich and poor. <laughs> Yeah, I'm getting there. But there, this is also, in 1888, this is the year after Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, which marked her 50th year on the British throne. And of course, we just celebrated Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee, which marked the 70th anniversary of her accession. So, like those in 1888, we too are dealing with a long-reigning female monarch in the United Kingdom, and just across the world, but especially uh, in England at the time, a general state of political unrest, class divisions, and overall change in strife. Uh, Brought on partly by the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, Britain had long been the world's largest empire, uh, but by 1888, its powers were beginning to wane. The the times they were a-changing, and that was partially thanks to us in America and those in Europe like Germany like you said, getting into the Industrial Revolution and breaking the British monopolies on trade and technology. It's like, oh, all of a sudden it doesn't matter if you own half the world. Exactly, because people can still make stuff and trade. You don't need all that space to make a, um, I was going to say a car, but they didn't have those yet. Shit. Yeah, we're barely 100 years out of American independence and we're really getting on the scene, especially in the post-Civil War era. And that's just taking away power from Britain and making them more pissed off. Unemployment was high in England, the socialist movement was growing, and the lower classes were beginning to fight back. With protest rallies in 1886 and 1887 ending violently with the protesters rampaging through the West End of London, looting from shops and damaging property. I don't suppose that ended with the protesters being violently put down? Uh, it didn't end well. <laughs> yeah, okay. This caused the upper and middle classes to begin to worry that the violence would continue to escalate and eventually trigger a whole revolution. And no locale encompassed more of those downtrodden masses 
than the East End of London and particularly the Whitechapel and Spitalfields districts. Well, me and the rest of the constables clubbed the lot of them to death, but we're just we're worried they're going to escalate the violence on us again. <laughs> yeah, also sounds familiar. This area was considered to be the outer city, so far from polite society in, in middle London, and therefore far from refined civilization. As with any bad side of town, so to speak, there are two sides to the story. Many of these lower-class citizens were hardworking Londoners who simply had difficult circumstances and were attempting to do their best within those circumstances. <laughs> Lazy Spitalfielders. This is the this is the guy on the other side of town. <laughs> I wouldn't piss on the lazy Spitalfielders. To to put out a fire that they probably started. <laughs> no, these were uh, blue collar workers. Oh, covered in shit, we are. You can't do a Cockney interjection every sentence. <laughs> That was just Oi, one. covered in shit we are? Yeah, that's how that's how we introduce ourselves to the, <laughs> the lovely neighborhood of Whitechapel. Also, my name's Michael. Now, these were butchers, shop owners, barkeeps, dock and factory workers, and, you know, just a, a lot of people doing jobs that other people didn't want to do. Whitechapel, and more specifically Spitalfields, housed some of London's worst slums, of course, in terms of high death and crime rates and terrible living conditions, paired with the highest population density in all of London. So it was a powder keg ready to explode, and all the upper classes were doing in response was just turning up their noses and trying to calm their own anxieties. They didn't want the poor catching. Little, little baby's born in the white chapel. So now we're doing In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley. Okay. Yeah, it relates. And his mother cried. <laughs> the conditions were truly dire, so let's keep that top of mind. In the so-called evil quarter mile, comprised of areas like Thrall Street, Flower and Dean Street, and Wentworth Street, and I think Spitalfields is right in this area, if you weren't able to rent or buy your own home, which was common, as one in about 30 Whitechapel residents was homeless at the time. Yeah, well, you know, property values are skyrocketing on the <laughs> evil quarter mile. Mm -hmm. Well, there was also some people like buying places and flipping them. I mean, it's it's not that different than now. Oh, you know how gentrified the evil quarter mile has gotten. Yeah, they're putting up tenements and uh, raking in the benefits of being a shitty landlord. I saw one guy installing a toilet last week. I mean, it's really bougie up there now. Yeah, they were mostly outhouses, communal outhouses. But anyway, homelessness was one, uh, one in about 30. So that's a high rate. And... Um, yeah, if you were homeless, you would be forced to reside in the common lodging houses where thousands of men, women, and children spent the nights desperate to get out of the elements. And they were desperate because despite some well-kept shelters, on the whole, living in these lodging houses was horrific, with the population largely comprised of criminals, sex workers, and the mentally ill. And I'm casting no judgments here because work was work and obviously mental health wasn't uh, exactly a cause celebre at the time. Oh, no. No, but it made for a difficult and dangerous atmosphere. Of course, the upper classes that turned away in horror from Whitechapel's lawlessness could oh, never quite... talk about the lodging houses a little bit? Sure. Wasn't it like, I mean, I, I, what I've read is that you could in these, in this place, in this time... 
you could spend like five cents to get a little cot for the night. But then they also had like one penny just you could sit up on a bench and slump against other homeless people. Yes. So there was, and I don't have it. I have it in my head from last podcast on the left, actually. But it was like one pence to sit on a bench and you'd basically sit in the equivalent of like church pews and just kind of lean on each other and sleep sitting up. Like airplane sleeping. Mm-hmm. Then you do, I think two pennies would be some sort of, be like a rope hammock kind of thing. And then four would be an actual bed. Oh, yeah. It was like just two but ropes. But like a cot, you know, but like an actual bed type of thing. It was just like two ropes, basically, right? Yeah. That you laid on the hammock thing? Mm-hmm. But it would allow you to lay. And that's two pennies. Um, so, Yeah. The upper classes that turned away in horror from Whitechapel's lawlessness could never quite forget about the region completely. As Richard Jones wrote in the Jack the Ripper Files, an easterly breeze might waft the overwhelming stench of sewage or the foul aroma from the area's slaughterhouses and factories into respectable nostrils. Worse still, epidemics that might begin in the slums could easily threaten bourgeois lives. Much of the fears of the upper crust stems right from this, that Whitechapel was the place where horror could begin, but could also spread. That fear was a huge part of why the Jack the Ripper case became such an obsession in the era, and the fact that it basically confirmed every negative stereotype the better off had about the East End. Although, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but there was sort of a gentleman Jack image that was also popular back then, right? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Probably the most when we talk about suspects, but yes, there was there would become, and again, we're going to detail it a little more, this interest in the upper classes of kind of taking on Jack the Ripper as one of their own. Um, and we'll kind of go into the psychology of like why they would like to do that. But yeah, life was nasty, brutish, and often short in Whitechapel. After all, the most common paying job was that of a sweatshop tailor. That was like your typical job you could get. Great. I mean, you know, you you do a hard day's work for a hard day's. Uh, what do you, you get? Probably probably know, like probably five pennies. five cents, and yeah. you you throw yourself on a cot. Yeah. Your odds were worse the younger you were. Donald Rumbelow wrote in the Complete Jack the Ripper. Most children were physically and mentally underdeveloped, those who did not die at birth, that is. 55% of East End children died before they were five. So it's more than half. One-tenth of elementary school pupils were estimated later to be mentally defective or unnaturally dull. Children frequently came to school crying with hunger and fell off their seats from exhaustion. In winter, they could not learn because they were too cold. So the odds are really stacked against these people. At the time, Whitechapel had also received a huge influx of Jewish immigrants fleeing persecution from Russia, Poland, and Germany. I'm sure they were faring well. Yeah, it added up to about 50,000 more people to the already overcrowded population. And everybody liked them, no problems. Jewish people were forced to take low-paying jobs in horrific sweatshop conditions, which also resulted in London-born blue-collar workers developing anger towards them for the classic reason of taking our jobs. Ah. Even though, again, these are some of the jobs that the average Whitechapel freelancer would shy away from. In June of 1887, a crime had also occurred in the East End to help turn public opinion against the Jewish people. Not that they needed much encouragement. A, a campaign by whom? 
Well, it wasn't a campaign. A man named Israel Lipsky poisoned a fellow lodger at his lodging house by forcing nitric acid down her throat, resulting in her death and his hanging for the crime. Both the perpetrator and the victim were Jewish. Unlike Saucy Jack, Lipsky was punished for his crimes, but it only fueled the fire of opinion against the immigration spike, and by the time of the Ripper murders, the term Lipsky was being used as a pejorative against Jewish people as a whole. Yeah, look at this Lipsky. Couple of Lipskys over here. Mm -hmm. This context is also important, as will become clear later. Many would place blame on the Jewish and immigrant community during the Ripper murders if they weren't blaming some sort of fancy gentleman due to the disbelief that one's own countrymen couldn't commit such a crime. Right. But that's, I mean, demonstrably false. They had murders, right? Yeah, but these were some of the most gruesome that had ever been publicized. Yeah. There was also the widespread issue of prostitution at the time. Many women were forced to turn to sex work just to pay for having a roof over their head at night or to support their families. Or drinking habits. Says Richard Jones, for the majority of middle-aged women who lived in the common lodging common lodging houses, into which category all but one of the Jack the Ripper's victims fell, prostitution was often the only way to earn enough money, not only for food and lodging, but also, and more often more importantly, to pay for the drink that helped them forget the nightmare of their everyday lives. Jesus Christ! It's grim stuff, but it's true. It was estimated that at the time, somewhere between 60,000 and 80,000 women were working as sex workers in London. Though, of course, there's no way of knowing the definite number. It's not like they're filing their tax returns or anything. They didn't have a registry? <laughs> to, no. You know, to get them tested and stuff? No. At night, many of these women would retreat to the darkest corners of Whitechapel with their clients, as often a shadowy, a shadowy alleyway was the only vaguely private place a woman had at her disposal to... Um, Spend some time. Yeah, great. Uh, I, open sewers and public outhouses and outdoor sex are, are things yeah. like I'm eager to combine. Yeah, and the latter is mostly thanks to a guy named Frederick Carrington, an heir to a local brewing dynasty who apparently got a bug up his ass about prostitution and took it upon himself to make sure that every brothel in the East End would be forcibly closed. Of course, this had the side effect of pu pushing sex workers out from a safer quarters, like indoors, to plying their trade in the streets. And now they're in the alleys where I can watch. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was his plan all along. Probably. Because uh, we got to keep in mind, closing brothels really does nothing for curbing sex work. People will always do sex work if they're desperate for money. Um, or as a choice. I'm not judging. But uh, it just makes it more dangerous, which is the real issue. Many women at the time now had to contend with not only the elements, but bullies or pimps, threatening them and taking their earnings, as well as clients who would refuse to pay, or criminals who would assault them to steal any money they had. Um, I imagine the, the, the bully didn't have, he hadn't kind of evolved the modern pimp's uniform, right? And by, the, by that, I mean the 70s pimp's uniform, I, I guess. don't think they were wearing crushed purple velvet no, or anything. No, like high heels with a goldfish in it? Or I don't think so, No. It was a dark and desperate life, but it was necessary for many to simply stay alive. The main idea of this whole thing, as written by Donald Rumbelow, is this. In October 1888, the Bell Lane area in Spitalfields was called the worst area in the whole of London. Its epicenter was Dorset Street, where four of the Ripper's victims, 
Chapman, Stride, Kelly, and Eddowes lodged at different times. This plague spot, so it was contemporaneously described, gave slum shelter to a gross overcrowding of more than 800 persons per acre. Such a figure in the heart of the Ripper's killing ground was horrendously disproportionate to the Whitechapel district as a whole, which was of 176 persons per acre, while for the metropolis as a whole, general London, it was 50 persons per acre. So there's a lot of miserable, poor people just piled on top of each other, desperate conditions, desperate living. I mean, it's a powder keg. Something's going to happen. And this happened. Mm-hmm. So all of this sets us up for the murders, and we're getting to them. But here's the thing. We're all a little unsure how many victims Jack the Ripper actually had. Oh. Like for sure. Yeah, this is best to cover up top, I suppose. Yes. There are the women known as the canonical five, Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly. But in total, there were 11 or so Whitechapel murders around this time. I think all women, probably. Though the others are less clearly victims of the same hand as the canonical five. But they deserve mentioning, and we'll start with the first two that occurred before the first canonical five victim, which was Mary Nichols. On April 3rd, 1888, a woman named Emma Smith was assaulted and robbed by a gang of three men on Brick Lane, initially surviving the attack but dying soon after. Smith received quite brutal treatment. She was bludgeoned about the face, cut on her ear, and sexually assaulted with a blunt object that ruptured her peritoneum, causing peritonitis and her later death. Well, that's horrible, but um, nobody ripped her. No, it's pretty certain that the Smith was not a ripper victim. As you said, she was not ripped, but she was probably just a target of the street gangs that would routinely prey on sex workers in the area. But again, for context about the desperation and safety and all of that (laughs) terrible stuff, uh, the case is worth mentioning. Next was Martha Tabram or Tabram, I'm going to say Tabram, on August 7th. Her body was found on the first floor landing of a tenement building in George Yard, a few hundred yards from the site of Emma Smith's assault. Again, this is all happening on top of each other. Uh, Tabram, did I say Tabram? Tabram had suffered. (laughs) She had suffered um, 39 stab wounds from her throat to her lower abdomen. Jeez. Yes, and she was dead by the time she was discovered. That is a lot of stab wounds. Yes. She had also received multiple knife wounds to her breasts and vagina, which suggested a sexual bent to the crime despite the lack of a sexual assault. Interesting. See, to me, the Mary Nichols murder, this might, you know... I guess we can can talk about it uh, when we're kind of summing things up, but I want to put a pin in this one. Um, because this seems more like a first murder than Mary Nichols does. Yes. Yes. The M.O. was a bit different here than with Jack the Ripper, like, officially. Um, she was basically just stabbed, not ripped. But the fact that the killer had concentrated on the lower abdomen area was of interest because the Ripper murders featured a similar focus. And, I mean the intensity of that stabbing and stabbing her in the vagina and stuff, that doesn't sound like, oh, I just don't want to pay this sex worker. 
Yeah, you don't stab someone 40 times if you just want to kill them quick so you can run away. So perhaps, yeah, she was a first run or test victim for Jack, who later perfected whatever his act would become. In reaction to these murders, the newspaper The East London Advertiser wrote, There is a feeling of insecurity to think that in a great city like London, a woman could be foully and horribly killed almost next to the citizens peacefully sleeping in their beds, without a trace or clue being left of the villain that did the deed. And uh, they had no idea how accurate these words were about to be. Well, someone had just also been killed, like, in that same spot. Yeah. Because every spot was basically the same spot, because they were all shoved into this little area. Just sleeping on ropes. Ropes and benches. Yeah. And that brings us to the first canonical Jack the Ripper victim, Mary Nichols. Oh. At about 3.40 a.m. on August 31st, 1888... Yes, Sean, we've somehow done it again. We're recording on the exact 134th anniversary of the beginning of the Ripper murders. Holy cow. Why so, do we always do this? So, I did, this was definitely not intentional. So if you're listening on download day, yesterday, Wednesday, was the 134th, Caroline? The anniversary of Mary Nichols's murder, yeah. Well, rest in peace, Mary. Certainly, yes. And um, what happened to Mary, Carrie? So, carriageman Charles Cross was heading to work along Bucks Row, which was a dark thoroughfare lined with two-story houses on one side and warehouses on the other. Uh, Cross noted what he thought to be a bundle lying in a gateway on Bucks Row, went to inspect it, and got the nasty shock of discovering that the bundle was actually a woman. (laughs) Mary Nichols. That's him being shocked. Oh, I see. As described in The Complete Jack the Ripper... She was lying on her back with one hand nearly touching the stable gate and the other her black straw bonnet, which was lying close by. Her skirt was pushed up almost to her waist. His first thought was that she had been raped and was still unconscious from the attack, and his next was that he might have disturbed her attacker. Normally, there was a great deal of noise in the street, but at that hour of the morning, it was quiet, and though he listened carefully for any strange noises, he could hear none. If he had disturbed the woman's attacker, he must have heard his footsteps as he escaped, or, supposing that the woman had been brought there in a cart and dumped, the rattle of wheels as he drove off. So another carriageman, Robert Paul, came up behind him. He was also heading to work. And the two of them approached Nichols, with Cross taking her hands and feeling that at this point they were very cold. Well, you just remember I found her first. She's mine. <laughs> Paul looked to see if she was breathing and thought he felt her chest move. Uh, I'm not sure if we're definite on if he did or if maybe he just felt it. And the two men decided to get on their way because they couldn't just like pick her up, I guess, and tell the first policeman they saw about the woman in the gateway. So so they left her there? Yeah, at this point they did. They went to uh, ideally go find a policeman. But they were beat to the punch by Police Constable Neal, who came upon Nichols as he was walking his beat along Bucks Row at 3.45 a.m. Oh, this smacks to me of, oh, yeah, we were gonna tell someone. Neal had a lantern, and this revealed to him that Nichols had a deep cut in her throat and was oozing blood. Another police constable joined him soon after and went to fetch the local surgeon, Dr. Ralph Llewellyn. She was still oozing blood. Yeah. Again, I don't know if she's still alive and this is still being pumped out of her or it's just gravity. Uh, Llewellyn arrived around 4 a.m. 
and he pronounced Nichols dead at this point and stated that since her legs were still warm, she had likely not been dead for more than a half hour. The police then moved the body to the mortuary, and a local resident began washing the blood off the gateway. More than half an hour at the point that the that he was looking at her? She so, had not been dead for more than a half an hour. Right. So so when, when the guy first came upon her, she was like just yeah. ripped. Yes. Um, yeah, because he came around 340, and so she probably would have been killed around 330. Actually, was she ripped? Oh, she ripped. We'll get there. So yeah, so someone's washing the blood away. Um, no, there wasn't much forensic evidence that was understood back in 1888. But even so, at this point, anything that would have remained for investigation was scrubbed away by daybreak. Great. That's just to keep the streets clean or? Yeah, I guess. Okay. So no police tape in 1888. No. uh... Not for this. I mean, this is kind of the first of this series of murders. So I don't know. Inspector John Spratling arrived at the mortuary to try and get information from the body that could lead to identification. Oh, looks like she was, uh, yep, she's dead. <laughs> and upon lifting Nichols's garment, made the horrific discovery that, along with her throat being cut, her abdomen had also been ripped open. The coroner hadn't uh, made that? Well, they saw the throat and they figured, this is how she died. And, um... Maybe what she was wearing was heavy enough that the blood wasn't apparent in the front. I'm not sure. So the tally of injuries kind of became clear. Mary had had her throat severed with two deep cuts, one of which completely severed the tissue down to the vertebra. Her vagina had been stabbed twice. And as Spratling just realized, her abdomen had been partially ripped open by a deep and jagged wound that caused her bowels to protrude. So basically... You know, organs spilling out. Other incisions inflicted to both sides of her abdomen had also been caused by the same knife that had cut everything else. And each of these wounds had been inflicted in a downward thrusting manner, which personally suggests to me that there was power and intention behind the movements. This is something he wanted to do. And he had an idea of what he wanted to get out of it. Well, unless he was carrying the knife point down as he jogged down the street. And then he tripped. Mm, I don't think so. And Mary Nichols... Tripped multiple times and cut out her bowels? Then he fell on my knife. (laughs) He fell on my knife ten times. Uh Uh-huh. As the news spread of the murder through Whitechapel, several witnesses came forward to state that the victim fit the description of a woman named Polly who lived at one of the common lodging houses. One thing led to another. I didn't have to... Didn't want to go into every single detail here. Uh, but soon the corpse was identified as Mary Ann or Polly Nichols, with both her father and estranged husband confirming her identity. So Mary Nichols was 43 at the time of her murder. She was my height, 5'2", uh, and she had graying hair and gray eyes. In 1864, she had married printer William Nichols and eventually had five children, But by the late 1870s, Mary's drinking had become an issue, and the couple separated in 1880. Ah. William, interestingly, was granted custody of the children and offered Mary an allowance of five shillings a week, which he stopped paying when he got wind of the fact that Mary was working as a prostitute to support herself. Wait, so... That'll get her not to be a prostitute. Take away her money. I was just going to say, yeah, you find out she's so destitute that she's, uh, uh, she has to sell her body, and so you're like, then I'm not... 
giving you money anymore? I guess. Okay. He was horrified at the sight of Mary's body at the mortuary, mortuary, stating that it has come to a sad end at last. So perhaps he expected a bleak death for Mary, given her circumstances. If so, then he then uh, the allowance would have uh, would have maybe been helpful with some strings. Hey, move out of Whitechapel. Yeah, I'm not sure of the conversion rate. It feels very much like a sickle to galleon type of thing in Harry Potter. I don't know if it's like pence or cents and shillings or dollars. You're looking at the wrong guy, Carrie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure a pound is like a dollar. Right, but did they have pounds at this point? No, or I think they a have shilling shillings? is somewhere in between. A shilling a pound. It's like a nut. A half dollar. It's like a nut. You're like a nut. Though Mary had been staying at the Thal Street Common Lodging House, she had been turned away for the evening because she didn't have the required four pence to pay for her bed. So only four pence separated a Whitechapel resident from complete homelessness for an evening. And she uh, didn't have any. I wonder what a beer cost. Well, we can kind of estimate. She was last positively seen around 2.30 a.m., so roughly an hour before her murder, by her friend Ellen Holland, who met her at the junction of Osborne Street and Whitechapel Road. Ellen reported that Mary had been drunk and told her that she'd made the required four pence for a sleeping area twice over already that night, but had spent it all away on alcohol. So she spent eight pence and she's drunk. So, I don't know, a pence? A beer? Maybe it's a two for one. Do you think she's had 16 beers? <laughs> no, I don't think so. She's very little, I guess. Yeah, it's probably a penny a beer. Yeah. Ellen tried to persuade her to come back to the lodging house, but perhaps knowing that she wouldn't be able to afford it, Mary instead headed off along Whitechapel Road, perhaps intending to either attempt to score a John and make the four pence or just sleep in the elements that night. At some point between 2.30 and 3.30 a.m., Mary Nichols met her killer and her grisly fate, ending her life in that dark gateway in Bucks Row. We'll discuss public reaction to the first murder and the circumstances of the second after the break. Oh. So see Jackie. Oi! <laughs> Just oi. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had just heard the tragic tale of Mary Nichols and her grisly end 134 years ago tonight as we record this podcast. Uh, Caroline, you had promised uh, to give me some of the public reaction, which I'm sure isn't the hysteria that we're going to see later with this with these, this series of murders. but uh, Not uh, quite yet, but it starts ramping up pretty fast. Okay. Yeah, of course, Mary Nichols' murder prompted both panic from the locals and determination from law enforcement to find the culprit. 
The first promising lead came straight from the East End sex workers who would be victimized in this case. And that was a local football team? The East End sex workers? Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to talk about... Chelsea beat for the cup this year, they do. Oh, God. I'll talk about the first suspect... Uh, right now in this episode rather than later on when I'm kind of doing a roundup just so we can get a sense of how the case was developing at the beginning. Local prostitutes began to speak of a client they referred to as Leather Apron. Oh yeah, this is one of my favorite. It's just such a creepy nickname for this weird... It's so sinister, even though there's no clear reason for it to be sinister, but it, it reminds me of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I feel like he's wearing a leather apron. Yeah, somehow an apron is worse than a leather face. I don't know how. Oh, yeah, he is leather face. Well, he yeah, likes he, leather. He's wearing a bunch of... He's wearing like a skin mask. Yes, he has an apron. Anyway, um, he's nicknamed Leather Apron because he frequently wore a... Leather skin mask? Oh, oh, apron. There apron. we go. He wore a leather apron. Though sometimes he also wore a deerstalker hat, which is the kind that Sherlock Holmes is famously depicted as wearing. Tying him in once again. So are you, you're telling me that Sherlock Holmes is Jack the Ripper? Yes, the fictional character is the real criminal. It's weird they don't mention the leather apron in all those stories. <laughs> Apparently, leather apron had been extorting money from sex workers and became violent toward those who refused to pay up. A local policeman named William Thick insisted that the name Leather Apron referred to a man named John, or Jack, Pizer. So, oh, Jack, you say? Yes. He is a Jack, yes. Well, that's very interesting, Carrie. There's not a lot of Jacks in history. <laughs> no, certainly not. So efforts were begun to try and bring Pizer in for questioning. Pizer was a Polish Jew who worked as a bootmaker and had a prior conviction for a stabbing. So Thick seemed to believe that Pizer had committed a string of assaults on sex, work sex workers previously, and I guess escalated. Unfortunately, the facts of this investigation leaked the press, and the Star newspaper published the first of several articles with the suspect's name in it on September 5th. The Star described the man... Dis the star described a man whose expression is sinister and who seems, oh, sorry, <clears throat> whose expression is sinister and who seems to be full of terror for the women who describe it. His eyes are small and glittering. His lips are usually parted in a grin, which is not only not reassuring, but excessively repellent. Well, sick burn and sick accent. Carrie, can you tell me again how his eyes are? Small and glittering. That was much better. The first time was like, oh. Sorry. No, I loved it. I really, I've never found you so attractive. <laughs> the article also stated that Leather Apron always carried a sharp knife and claimed that he is a Jew or of Jewish parentage, his face being of a mocked Hebrew type. Oh, that feels problematic. Yeah, it is. Because it is, Sean. And to add to the panic, the article also described Leather Apron as a sort of supervillain able to move noiselessly with prostitutes, not realizing his presence until it was too late. Oh. So they're really doing a great job to calm the public. Yeah, absolutely. So he can move without making a sound. Yeah. 
Jack Pizer caught wind of the articles and realized the police were after him, as well as the possibility that he may be discovered before law enforcement by vigilantes who weren't worried about questions of guilt or innocence. In fear of his life, Pizer went into hiding among his relatives as anti-Semitism skyrocketed in the Whitechapel area. He would eventually be arrested after the second murder on September 10th, which we'll get to soon. But after offering solid alibis for both killings, he was ruled out as a suspect and publicly cleared of any involvement of the crimes at the second inquest. So they were like, he does, we can confirm he's definitely extorting money from sex workers. Uh, Nothing we can do about that, but... uh, I don't know on that end. I don't killed that girl. (laughs) I don't know on that end. But with all of that in mind, let's get to the second of the canonical five killings. And then I think it actually makes the most sense to leave off today and break this first part into two halves. Oh, a lot of math there. Hold on. Let me. It's just this is part one. There's okay. going to be a part two. OK, OK. And a part three and probably a far, part four. Row. <laughs> I think that this series will lengthwise probably shake out to the same as axe murders and satanic panic so four total with us discussing the crimes themselves for the first two suspects and related stuff in the third and then sean you'll tackle the conspiracy theories and um more out there hypotheses surrounding this case in the last episode oh there's so much i have carrie these are the biggest not the most effective but these are the biggest magical spells you've ever heard of (laughs) I don't know. I've heard of some pretty big spells. But before we get to all that, victim number two, Annie Chapman. John Davis left his home at 29 Hanbury Street, a four-story house with 17 total tenants, at 5.45 a.m. to get ready for work. So this is in that uh, 800 people per uh, acre part of town. No, it still is. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, I thought you said this isn't. Uh, yeah, so he's 5.45 a.m. He's standing on the back step of his house, and he saw a body of a woman lying at his feet. So he runs out, I guess, through the alley to the main part of the street, where he brought three passing men to see the corpse. Like, oh my god, you you can't believe what I found! Did he, like, try to charge them admission? Like- no, I think he was just freaking out. That comes later. Uh, it'll be a penny ahead, I need to buy a sleeping rope! <laughs> Uh, And then all four of the men took off to find a policeman. So they were very determined. Inspector Joseph Chandler was on the scene soon after, joined at 6.30 a.m. by divisional police surgeon Dr. George Baxter Phillips. George Baxter Phillips? Baxter. B-A-G-S-T-E-R. No. I was named after me mum's best bag. Baggy. He called her Baggy. (laughs) He just called me... He just called me bags. <laughs> uh, Chandler also hastily arranged for telegrams to be sent to Detective Inspector Frederick Aberline at Scotland Yard, who had been called in to assist in the Mary Nichols investigation and who would soon become a much larger fi- figure in the eventual Jack the Ripper case. Yes, of course, Aberline is the main character of From Hell mm-hmm. and probably from lots of fiction surrounding this investigation. Well, he's really the main character in the case. You know, Dr. Phillips hypothesized that the killer had grabbed Chapman by her chin and partially strangled her before cutting her throat and attempting to behead her. As with Mary Nichols, this throat slitting was done with two deep cuts. As described, her 
stomach had been entirely laid open and her intestines had been pulled out of the cavity and left by her right shoulder. Another section of flesh from her stomach was cut away and placed upon her left shoulder. Yeah, so... So this, there's like weird tableaus beginning to start here. Yeah, and you can all, you can immediately see both similarities to the first killing, but also, you know, he's sort of expounding on, expanding on, and evolving on his uh, his methods and his little art piece here. Yeah, it is. It is kind of like a weird, twisted art piece because he's taking stuff with him, which I'm about to go into. But he's also kind of setting things up and like. It's very Hannibal Lecter-y. It's very Silence of the Lambs. Just like setting up a whole diorama for people to find. Well, is that a Hannibal thing? I know it's a Michael Myers thing. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. He does the whole, um, like, the butterfly skin. Oh, he, he did crucify that cop on the cage thing. But especially in Red Dragon, it's very similar to what the killer does in Red Dragon. So... Her womb had been cut out and was missing, along with sections of her bladder and vagina, with the presumption that the killer had taken these with him. Oh, uh, couldn't eat a snake later. Just like a doggy bag. I don't know why he was Australian that time. <laughs> Dr. Phillips would later state that this particular fact suggested to him that it was possible the murder itself had been committed for the main purpose of obtaining the womb, specifically. Phillips also said that, based on the evidence, he felt the killer possessed some anatomical knowledge, as in cutting into someone and knowing where to look for these items. Yeah, a lot is made of this. I I do want to point out that you could gain anatomical knowledge from medical training, or just from cutting people open, (laughs) or, or just from cutting, like, pigs open. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of gonna go into it more when we talk about the suspects, but anatomical knowledge at this time. I mean, you could be a butcher. You could be a pathologist. You could be a whole variety of things to kind of know where stuff is in the body. But the belief that the... And it does get overstated sometimes, right? You'll see some sources. uh... Well, there's a lot of doctor suspects. um, And in time after time, the guy was a doctor. So they, they definitely went with it. Yeah, but sometimes it's like, it was surgical skill. Only a yes. surgeon could have made these cuts. And it's like, it's like no, they were just big cuts in I, her belly. I don't know if I want my surgeon to be called the Ripper, you know. But this belief that there was some skill or knowledge of anatomy involved became one of the core pillars of Ripper mythology and kind of, like you said, still pervades to this day. But the victim... Annie Chapman had been born Eliza Ann Smith in 1841, making her a bit older than Mary Nichols at the time of her death. She had married coachman John Chapman in 1869 and had three children. Shortly before the death of her daughter Emily in 1882, the couple separated, likely exacerbated by Annie's drinking problem. I'm seeing a pattern. Similar thing, but again, desperate times. I mean, it... The author put it the best. They're just drinking to escape their terrible lives. Yeah, I mean, the, it must the have been crushing brutality. Just yeah, a brutal life, everyday existence. Yeah, John had given Annie ten shillings a week until his death in 1886. Although they didn't break up because of John's drinking, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's both times. It's the woman, which Some, is interesting. Somebody was pulling his weight in the relationship. That's all. Uh, oh, I don't think I'm gonna 
go there with that. But anyway, he did pay her until his death in 1886, where after she made money by selling her crochet work and artificial flowers, along with sex work. Annie was described as short and plump, with an ashen complexion likely caused by the fact that she was dying of consumption, a.k.a. tuberculosis. Oh, I'm sorry for that other thing I said. Yeah, you should be. (laughs) She may have caught the disease from a client. It was a popularly sexually transmitted disease at the time. You're also sitting, like sleeping, sitting up, leaning on strangers, right? So you can just catch TB that way. Sure, absolutely. Chapman had had a violent argument with another resident of Crossingham's lodging house sometime in the days before her death and had been left badly bruised and in a considerable amount of pain. So she's just... But still working? I mean, she she has to. to. Yeah. She has to. On the night of September 7th, 1888, Annie arrived at the aforementioned lodging house and told the manager she had been in the infirmary for the past few days. This might have been related to the beating. When we say infirmary, do we mean like the hospital or? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there was like a small, not like an urgent care, but you know, like a small kind of offshoot that people could go to. Who's running that? You know what I mean? Yeah. But she had been in there. And the manager allowed her to sit in the kitchen for a while and eventually sent his assistant in to request the money for her bed for the evening. It seemed at this point Annie was drunk and did not have the required four pence to pay for it. Okay, but she did when she walked in, so she somehow absconded um, in the I don't know time? if she did when she walked in, but uh, she did at some point because she was drunk, so she did buy that stuff. I want full bios. It's like uh, Pearl, the landlord. <laughs> yeah. Uh, She entreated the manager to allow her to stay a while longer, but astutely noting that she had been able to find money for alcohol that night, the manager escorted her off the premises. Oh, I mean, she's getting in her own way. I feel badly for Annie. You should. It's a terrible, terrible circumstance. At 5.30 a.m. early the morning of September 8th, a woman named Elizabeth Long was walking along Hanbury Street when she spotted another woman, who she later identified as Annie Chapman. Annie, at this point, was talking to a man outside number 29 Hanbury, which you'll remember was the approximate location where her body would be later found. Oh, shit. Long described the man as being dark-haired with a brown deerstalker hat and dark overcoat. Leather apron? He had the hat going, and um, he had what she called a shabby genteel appearance. So he's he's wearing like very nice clothes, but kind of run down. Layers of clashing tweeds and like a <laughs> fake carnation in his uh, pocket and elbow patches. I'm picturing a hobo, I guess. No, I'm just. I assume it's like they were nice clothes, but he's been wearing them for a while. Finding nothing suspicious about the pair, Long walked on by, overhearing the man asking, Will you? And Chapman... Will you? And Chapman replying, Yes. Before she was out of earshot. That's pretty sexy talk. (laughs) Long stated that the man, despite having his back to her, appeared to be a foreigner. This might have been code for an immigrant or Jewish man, but what about him she found so foreign, I couldn't say. It could be his um, leather apron-y face. <laughs> she didn't see his face. Ah, damn it. <laughs> could be his apron. She didn't see an apron. But at 5.30 a.m., this is, you know, she's walking by, and then at 5.45, uh, Annie Chapman's body's found. That's 15 minutes. Yeah. 15 minutes. I mean, these encounters 
are probably not long affairs, right? I mean, when they don't yeah, end but you're in death. St- I mean, you're, kill- you're going through all the effort of killing someone. You're doing all your, your dissecting and, and getting away far enough that you're not immediately seen by someone else. I mean, yeah, 15 pr- minutes is, is quick when you're doing this kind of stuff. Probably, probably could have been this guy then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very likely. Annie Chapman's murder sent the entire Whitechapel district into an absolute frenzy because despite the area's reputation, two brutal and bloody homicides of women within about a week's span was still pretty out of the ordinary. Well, and there had been, what, a month before two other murders? Yeah, a couple months, yeah. Once the body was taken to the mortuary, locals... And you mentioned it before. They began charging curious sightseers a few pence to view oh, the location no. of the murder from their nearby windows. I was kidding. No, they really did that. And of course... Wait, don't you get a better view from just on the street up Well, close? it's the back porch of this house. So presumably these are like the surrounding at least, what, three? Yeah, the neighbor looky-loo windows. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you imagine you just look out your back window and there's just constantly crowds of people in all the neighboring windows? Yeah. Looking at where there was just a corpse in your backyard. Today it would be cell phone cameras, you know, they'd all have cell phone cameras up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Harder to charge the three pence, I guess, because you would just have it on TikTok. <laughs> oh, God. That's grim. So panic, of course, swiftly increased with mobs and vigilantes beginning to band together to try and root out anyone suspicious who could be responsible. Unfortunately, there was also the fact that a freshly washed leather apron oh, Jesus was found by Chapman's body. Pizer. Uh, it apparently belonged to the son of one of the residents in the house, and it was, you know, linked back to him. Um, the apron was consequently ruled out as being related to the crime or the murderer, but it was enough to link this second killing to the feared leather apron character, and thus the Jewish population. Oh, well, this doesn't see. This doesn't seem like a neighborhood that needs like additional More anti-Semitism. Racism? No, because this led to an even greater uptick in anti-Semitism, and Jewish residents of the area began to be attacked, harassed, and beaten to cries of "No Englishman is capable of crimes such as these." It's not really. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, but you know. No, she wasn't even splashed with a drop of tea. <laughs> because of these racist assaults. Large numbers of police began to be funneled into the East End from the other parts of London to deal with the problem. They had no idea that they would really end up caught in the goriest murder spree the area had ever known. <laughs> and that's for that's for next week. Yeah. But for now, it seems the increased presence of the law scared the killer off a bit if he was intending to kill again. So the residents and policemen of Whitechapel began to sleep a little easier, ply their trades with a little less fear. But the pause would be short-lived. The next murders would take place before the end of the month. And that's where we'll pick up next week with the so-called double event of September 30th, 1888. And also the infamous Dear Boss letters the increasing mania in the Whitechapel district, and eventually the final but utterly horrific murder of the last of the canonical five, Mary Jane Kelly. Wow. Uh, so action-packed next week. And these uh, murders really all happened close together. 
Yeah, it was just between, I mean, it was, it was a month and change. It was late, late, late August to uh, October. You know, maybe it's a mistake to apply the patterns um, that investigators noticed in serial killers in the 1970s to um, a figure as old as this. Oh, they've done it. No, I know. <laughs> but actually, John Douglas, who I think Manhunter is based on the uh, the TV show, he he wrote about Jack the Ripper in his like profiling book. Yeah, and who he thought it would be, which I'll talk about. It doesn't feel like. By that lens, these don't feel like the first two murders this person has done. These are really intense murders that are yes. like really close together. Certainly not the first violent acts. Maybe there have been assaults in the past. Um, Isn't there usually a cool down period for a serial killer? It really depends on the circumstances. But if you're going to profile this, I mean, obviously there's a sexual angle. There's a hatred or... Um, coveting of women definitely a fascination but not a, a kind one and you know i always refer to jack the ripper as a man because it seems pretty clear to me that this was a man yeah. there are like a couple women suspects i'm sure we'll talk about one or two but just the brutality um and the the sexualization of this crime everyone seems uh, pretty sure and i am pretty sure it was a man well and almost all murderers of this type are not all but almost all murderers of this type are men yeah yeah so <sighs> there's a lot to come there's a lot to come i couldn't i couldn't dive too far in or else we'd we'd end up with like a two hour long episode but um i think this is a good place to press pause and regroup next week with the second uh oh no third and fourth murders and yeah. fifth eventually and the killings only get more grisly and again the next time jack strikes it'll be twice in the same night mm -hmm. Ooh. Mm -hmm. uh, well stick around for this uh break dear listener because uh it is our hundredth episode and we, when we come back we have some um we actually got some nice little listener voicemails and i wanted to play them for you yay I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hey, listeners. So as we mentioned before the break, um, it's our big 100th episode. And that also means it's roughly our two-year anniversary of doing this show. Uh, yes, actually, a little bit more. I think a little bit less. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. No. I think we started like mid-September 2020. We've done two Paracons. Yeah. Those are both in July. September 2020. Okay. September uh, 2022. I'll have to think about this math and get back to you. <laughs> um, and we're just really excited to still be doing this. Um, we've 
just grown, I guess, as, as people, I think. I but think uh, as people, as broadcasters, as broadcasters. As hopefully as researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I personally really want to thank uh, all of you for giving us a reason to keep doing this. Because, you know, if it was just just us talking to each other, then we don't need the mics and everything. Yeah, I mean, we, we see lis- listenership increasing. We see people interacting with us more, which we'll get to uh, in a minute. And um, it just feels awesome because, you know, we do this show because we have fun with it. But also we we like to share that knowledge and fun with everyone else. And um, I don't know, we love podcasts. So we really want to make something good. And we hope we are. Yeah, exactly. Um, And... I don't know, Carrie. What are what are some moments that stand out to you? What are some favorite um, episodes over these last hundred? Oh my goodness, I have so many. Uh, I I've loved every chance to kind of dive into some of my pet topics. Uh, Jack the Ripper is definitely one of those, but you know, like Salem witch trials, I really really enjoyed. Anything to do with like weird twisted history, I like. Um, you know, it's just been really awesome to learn more about the stuff that I'm already interested in. So, yeah, I think, I mean, there have been some funny episodes, for sure. Yeah, I, I think the um, Satanic Panic series and the Axe Murder series are actually two highlights of the show for me. Those were just deep, deep research holes to fall down and uh, and lots of fun and I mean, just the fact that I, I, you know, I eventually would have read The Man from the Train if not for this show, but... Uh, like You got to it faster this way. And I think it's like my favorite nonfiction book I've ever read. So um, mm. those are really good episodes. Uh, I also love the D.B. Cooper and, of course, your um, sterling treatment of the Salem Witch Trials. <laughs> uh, encyclopedic and respectful and funny and, um, yeah, you, you killed it. Oh, gosh, thank you. Yeah, I also love doing uh, any of like the music mysteries or um, events, you know. I, Turn me on, Deadman. <laughs> Turn me on, Deadman. I love anything to do with rock music, especially classic rock. So doing Paul is Dead and The Day That Music Died, I've really enjoyed doing that stuff. It's been cool to partner with Static Era for those episodes. But, um, you know, especially Paul is Dead, I just really loved doing that. And it gave me an excuse to listen to a lot of Beatles. So you can't hate that. Hell yeah. So we just want to thank you all. Um, it's been awesome these last two years. We're going to keep on keeping on as long as we can, uh, especially through this very heavy series. And, you know, if you have any favorite episodes, any clips, um, I think we want to do a bit of a, a retrospective clip show for at least Patreon coming up within the next few weeks. We're very deep in Jack the Ripper right now, so when we have time to do that. But just any of your favorite clips or topics or moments or any recommendations you have for things you'd like us to cover, you can call us at uh, 203-666-5529. That's our Google voice. Leave us a message, and um, maybe we'll feature you on the show like some of the fine people we'll be hearing from next. Yeah, that's right, because um, several of our listeners did. We uh, put out a call, of, we put out this number to call for the first time last week, and uh, we did get a couple of listeners calling in to uh, just wish us wish us the best on the occasion of our 100th. Uh, pretty exciting stuff, and uh, Carrie, I think you're going to be excited to hear some uh, minor celebrities on this list as well. Yeah, I think uh, you know listeners and friends of the show, too, so that'll be exciting. Hi, Sean, Carrie, and Pope. just wanted to call and congratulate you on 
100 episodes. It's been an amazing time listening um, and just enjoying it over the all, over all these episodes and really looking forward to hearing the next 100 as well. Um, looking back, trying to think of the ones that uh, caught my ear the most and that I really stuck out, D.B. Cooper, The Watcher, Lake City Quiet Pills, Fan of Dark Ages, Time Travel with Don Peter, and anything cryptid. <laughs> Every, everything has been just a blast. And I can say, you know, one of the best things about listening is, uh, regardless if it's a topic I've never heard about, um, a topic I'm vaguely familiar with, or something I think I know a lot about, can absolutely just learn a bunch. And the amount of care and uh, research that you all put into it, um, and the enjoyment that comes through the podcast as well is just absolutely great. It's just been wonderful, and I'm glad to be a bit of been a small part uh, about it to uh, to listen and enjoy. Uh, for uh, just a suggestion of, of what you all could do in the future, um, you know, I think having a uh, you know a live recorded podcast in DC uh, <laughs> covering the ghosts and hauntings of, of the nation's capital would be uh, much enjoyed. It'd be great for uh, to be able to come out and, and support you all and, and listen to that. So um, all the best and uh, looking forward to the next 100. Uh, bye. Okay, that um, didn't have a name attached to it, but that sounds to all the world, uh, to me, like <laughs> Alex Nakutis, our um, uh, one of our one of our uh, patrons. Yeah, one of our most stalwart uh, supporters <laughs> on Patreon, mm-hmm. uh, and also his lovely wife is also a fan. Yes, so shout out to her. Yes, thank you both very much <laughs> uh, uh, to Alex and Aurora. And um, you know, Alex said that he was a he's just been a, a small part of the show and and what's made us keep on going but any support is is a huge huge meaningful thing to us and you know that can come in the guise of patrons or you know not everyone can afford to do that or whatever that's cool but just reaching out on social media sharing the show giving us a five-star review like trust me it's it's a big deal so the show only exists Basis, based on two things, based on us keeping on doing it, which we will, and based on people keeping on listening. So that's up to you guys. So uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, it means the world to us. Um, Alex also sent us some pictures and uh, I, I, th- I think was going to send us some stickers even uh, from his <laughs> recent trip to the um, Cryptid Museum in Portland, oh, Maine. God, uh, bucket list for sure. Super jealous. And uh, Alex and I have been playing D&D online recently <laughs> and I promise we're going to play soon. Maybe we can make that like a, a patron tier to like join a campaign of D&D with you. Well, I would love that, but it can't get in the way of my current campaign with Alex That's because true. we're just deep in this tomb and I I don't know if these boys are ever going to get out. Um, That's what she said. Let's take a listen to our next. Uh, I, I think this is another voice you'll recognize, Carrie. Hmm. This is Paul Ferrante, <laughs> author, uh-huh. aka Father of the Pod. Yes. My favorite two episodes are <laughs> Count von Cosell. Mm. Yep, yep. And La Pascualita. <laughs> La Pascualita. In the future. I think I'd like to see some pirate tales. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> we did Blackbeard. Short, we'll to... succinct. Congrats on oh. oh, you're uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, we, we did Blackbeard. I we'll guess we'll do more. We'll have to return to the age of piracy for... Uh, I think we can manage some more out of that. For father of the pod, Paul Friday. Well, uh, 
little Lafitte action, maybe. I think he's angling for another appearance on the podcast. What's happening? And <laughs> he I, does have another book involving pirates. All right, let's. I'm happy to have him back on. I can't wait. Uh, it'll be like a once a year thing when we're on a family trip. But right. yeah, so his favorite, Count von Kosel. That's our 19th episode. One of our most unexplainably popular, one that people always mention. And La Pascualita is one of our early mini-sodes that we published. On Patreon. Uh, it was the same week around, as Count yeah. von Kosel. And that's the story of a mannequin in a bridal shop in Mexico, which may or may not be a corpse. Yeah. So if you want to get that story, which is a lot of fun, we have a lot of fun with that. I dug in as deep into that as I could. Um, Join us over on Patreon. That's right. Um, Okay, we've got uh, three more to go. And this one comes to us from Anna. Hello, Sean and Carrie. Congratulations on 100 episodes, you guys. It's Anna, though you probably know me better as a little sister. <laughs> now, you both know I love Ain't It Scary. I've listened to literally every episode. But today I wanted to call in because I have a great real estate tip for you two, and it has everything to do with your Amityville Horror episodes. Over the weekend, the movie was on TV multiple times the 1979 version, with James Brolin and Michael Kidder, that is. Mm-hmm. And I kept stumbling upon it right at the scene where the priest gets all covered in glide and cleaves with blight, and that's what got me thinking. I know you guys have mentioned that you're hoping to buy a house, mm-hmm. and as any good house hunter knows, you're going to want to have the given home inspected before you commit, right? Well... Why not kill two birds with one stone and bring a priest along at the same time? That's if you have idea. an adverse reaction, like Father <laughs> Delaney, then you know there's no point in making an offer, unless that's the sort of thing you're looking for, of course. Smart. Just something to think about. Anyway, here's to another hundred. Stay spooky, you guys. Aww. Anna, love it. She's so sweet. Um, now, listen, I do think a haunting is probably a feature and not a bug for us. <laughs> well... Not a not a demonic pig situation. We already have a demonic pig situation. <laughs> exactly. We can't Paul. we can't deal with two. Um, yeah, Anna is our a our designer Alyssa's sister. Uh, she, Alyssa designed the amazing cover art that we've been using this whole time. And if you see our t-shirts and stickers, those amazing original designs um, are also Alyssa's. Yeah, we're going to be uh, really pumping out the merch stuff coming up soon but we got stop fat shaming bigfoot designs we have fresno nightcrawler designs we have a satanic panic logo looking like a, a metal band t-shirt that's all Alyssa, and um anna has been listening to us this whole time she's always reached out on on twitter and social media she she's she was one of the first people to do that when i was like is anyone listening to this show and it really it made me feel great and she's always got uh really great feedback and we really appreciate it thank you so much for being such a stalwart listener truly and as long as we're on the subject please stop fat shaming bigfoot she wasn't doing it hey sonny terry this is adam oh <laughs> Adam coming in hot. <laughs> uh, it's uh, the only way he knows how. The Adam Mace way. Here we go. Hey, Sean and Terry. This is Adam. Hey, Your friends up in New York miss you, Machine. We're just we're just dropping a message to congratulate you on one hundred episodes. <laughs> and we're so we're so happy that we're got to be a part of one of those episodes. Yeah, that was wonderful. 
And uh, we were so happy you were on our show this last season, our first season, our inaugural season. <laughs> so we are raising you another 100, 200, 300, 400, all the episodes in the world. We can't wait to work together again. And uh, we're so happy you have this little connection. Happy, happy 100. Happy 100. Aww. All right. We love Adam and Christina over at the New York Mystery Machine podcast. And Great pod. Uh, we had a great time with them that you can hear back on our Hudson Valley UFOs episode and on their podcasts, Hudson Valley's US UFOs episode, which was released the same week. Kind of a crossover deal. Yeah, they they covered more Whitley Straber. We covered the Hudson Valley sort of uh, triangle sightings. Yeah, it was awesome working with them. Um, Go listen to the New York Mystery Machine podcast. Subscribe. They do a lot of great New York-based stuff, kind of like we do Connecticut, but obviously more focused. They just covered Joel Rifkin, who is a serial killer. We'll definitely get to at some point, a Long Island serial killer. Um, they just started their second season, and um, it's only getting better. So thank you so much, Adam and Christina. We love you guys. Can't wait to collaborate again. Um, thank you so much for the kind words. Yep, and it looks like we just have one more here. Oh. Hi, this is Maria Ferrante, mother <laughs> of the pod. Congratulations, Sean and Carrie, for your 100th podcast. Mm -hmm. My favorite was Diana, of mm -hmm. course, and I can't wait until you do Jack the Ripper and the Kennedy assassination. Oh. And also, I hope everybody <laughs> joins Patreon. Oh. listen to La Pascualita. As we said. I'm so happy for you. Bye. Oh, both the Ferrantes. Both the Ferrantes. <laughs> Clearly parents my parents coming. are very supportive. <laughs> big fans. They're just big fans Listen, of the show. Listen, I'm an only child, okay? <laughs> and we both we know they're both big fans of La Pascualita. Yeah, thank you so much, Mom. Um, her love of Princess Diana is what interests me in Princess Diana in the first place. So I'm glad that she thought I did that story justice. And her love of uh, Mexican mummies is surprising <laughs> but uh knowing that it's my genetics not that surprising yeah, fair enough so hope that you enjoy jack the ripper and we will eventually get to the kennedy assassination that will be another bear of a topic to cover um but we'll we'll certainly get there um thank you for calling in yeah absolutely thank you all so much and that's it for this hundredth episode of ain't it scary with sean and carrie like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number as well, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also know on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Did you, you never told me, did you have to s request the 666 prefix? Um, so I picked a Connecticut area code and then they start giving you a bunch of numbers and I just kept going till I got 666 because oh. I thought that would be a uh, bitchin'. It's totally bitchin'. Uh, <laughs> special thanks to our beloved top tier patrons. You heard from uh, some of them earlier. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. Thank you, guys. We love you very much. Uh, the rest of you, feel free to call in. I want to hear your pretty little voices. <laughs> See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. 
Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.